Turn with me back in your Bible to Acts chapter 23. Since it has been almost two months since we were in the book of Acts, let me just give you a very quick review or refresher on what has recently happened, as our memories uh, oftentimes are not as strong as we would like them to be. Uh, Paul has been collecting money from Gentile churches throughout the Roman Empire. He is taking the money he's collected for needy Jewish Christians in the church in Jerusalem, which remember, that's where Christianity was birthed. It was almost entirely Jewish Christians, if not exclusively Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so when Paul finally arrives, he's asked for prayer. Talks about this in Romans 15. He says, pray that this gift of grace be received and that I be received and frankly, that I not be killed, because he knew that his life was in danger the moment he sets foot in Jerusalem. He gets there, uh, he gives the money, he speaks about the money in Acts as well, gives the money to the churches, but there is this tension in the air, and so they ask Paul to participate in, remember, ceremonial uh, offerings, and so he participates in that, and Paul becomes ceremonially pure, although he's not under that law, he does that to please people who might stumble over that in Jerusalem, and when he's at the temple, people think that he has brought a Gentile into the temple complex itself, past the wall of partition you're not supposed to cross with a Gentile. It's a capital punishment. And of course, Paul had not done that. It was just an assumption people made. So a riot breaks out. They start beating Paul on false premises. Paul's used to this by now, I think, but still, he's being beaten. A Roman tribune, we find out his name in today's passage is Claudius Lysias, comes down. He was a high-ranking person. Uh, he would have had uh, control over many Roman soldiers. He comes running down with some centurions, and they grab Paul, and they pick him up over their shoulders. They start walking him up the stairs into the fortress in the corner of the temple, and as they carry Paul on their shoulders, Paul leans over, and I guess they set him down at some point. He leans over and says, hey, can I address the crowd? Like, Paul, you just don't stop. So they set him down. They go, okay, maybe this will make things better. It's not going to. Paul then gets to preach really the gospel, his own conversion and his appearance of the risen Jesus and his commission to go preach to the Gentiles. And as soon as the word Gentiles comes out, the mob reawakens in violence. They rush him into the fortress and they lock Paul up. The next day, Paul goes to appear before what they think will be the more civilized group of the Jewish leaders, the, the, you know, the, the aristocracy, the Sanhedrin, which is highly, uh, high-level Pharisees and Sadducees, mostly Sadducees. And when Paul goes to speak to them, he mentions resurrection. And what happens? The room goes crazy again. They're about to tear Paul apart. Claudius Lysias is going, Paul, I can't take you anywhere. This is ridiculous. So they have to rush in. They grab Paul. They take him back to the Antonia Fortress, and he goes to bed that night. And the text does not say this, so I don't want to be guilty of what people call psychologizing the text or reading the psychology of a character out that's not there explicitly. But let me just give, I think, a safe bet. Paul, perhaps, was experiencing a little bit of uncertainty as to what's about to happen, and perhaps even a little bit of discouragement. Yes, even the Apostle Paul could at times worry and ha have moments of discouragement. Second Corinthians talks about that. And as Paul is going to go to sleep that night, we get to the beginning of our text. So if we're caught up now, let me give you the title of the message. The sermon is really all about God's providence. The title is called, Trusting the Promises of the God of Providence. Trusting the Promises of the God of Providence. And Romans 8 as Jerry just led us, is not a bad place to start that journey. Really, we could spend our whole life just trying to believe and really absorb those promises. And I have four points. Miraculously, they all start with P. I don't know how that happened. Okay, so number one, uh, you have the promise, which we'll address in just a moment. Number two, you have the problem. Number three, the protection. And number four, the pruning. 
And these all go in the order of the passage. Number one, the promise. Number two, the problem. Number three, the protection. And number four, the pruning. So we will begin with the promise, which is just verse 11. Paul gets back into the barracks. He's been beaten bloody perhaps two days in a row now. Paul is exhausted. They lay him down, no doubt, on a not very comfortable bed, and he goes to sleep, weary, exhausted, uncertain of the future. And this is what happens. Verse 11, the promise. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, this is what I love. Now, the Lord does not appear visibly to us today. He does not speak to us audibly today, but the Lord does speak through His Word, and by the divine illumination of His Holy Spirit, the Word comes alive to us in ways that at times are astonishing. And how often has it been as Christians where you are weary, you are exhausted, you are worried, you are maybe even upset about something in your life, and you just feel like you've got no strength left? And what do you do? You go to that chair at your house, you know the chair, you sit down, turn the lamp on, right? You get your Bible out, and you just call on God's name. And what happens? So often, God speaks not fresh new words. He enlivens His once-for-all word, and His word comes alive to us. It's like a double-edged sword. It pierces into the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it, 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 piercing to the division of the heart, exposing motives and, and comforting us. And it's as though the Lord is saying, be encouraged. I have, I, I have not forgotten you. You are in the midst of my hand, and I have a plan that I have not abandoned. It is so important as Christians that we not grab hold of a promise God did not actually make. Now, that may sound almost silly. How many times have Christians grabbed hold of what they misinterpret the Bible to be saying? So they might have the word blessing in the Bible that God promises to bless us. Even the verse you read, Jerry, that if we follow God, if we meditate on His Word, we will have great success. And it is so easy to take a, a phrase like that and to what? To twist it and to find success how I want to define it or to find blessing how I want to define it as a middle-class American, right? Which is different, perhaps is different, than how God defines blessing. I mean, just, just, just to give an example, 1 Peter 4, let me just, just get this, okay? I, I love 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you might also be glad and rejoice when His glory is revealed. And then he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now think about the American vocabulary of blessed, too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> Think about hashtag blessed, okay, for a second, which is a terrifying thing. Don't ever scroll through hashtag blessed on social media because it's not going to be a biblical definition that you will find. What do you have in First Peter? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, blessed. You are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It is evident that you have the Spirit of God because your life is so in conformity with Christ that people are treating you the way they treated Christ, which was not well. 
And this is an actual sign of blessing. God is with you. He's near you. So let us be so aware that as we reach for a promise, we do not, we do not become misinformed about what God has said. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let us define by other texts what the word blessed, what the word successful means in context. This is about our knowing the Lord and walking in the light of the Lord's countenance, that He lift up His countenance upon us and give us peace. That is true blessing no matter what our circumstances are. And so we need to reach out and grab hold of what God's Word really says, and then we need to believe that promise. Now listen, after this verse, after verse 11, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 35, to my understanding here, I could double-check, triple-check, there is no mention of God's name. There is no mention of the Holy Spirit or Jesus. There's no mention of God at all for the rest of this chapter. And a few different pastors pointed out this same point. It's a little bit like a book of the Bible, Esther. Remember, Esther's been a controversial book in the Bible because Esther never mentions the name of God. A whole book of the Bible never mentions the name of God. There's no mention of prayer in the book. It mentions fasting. There's no mention of prayer. It sounds like it's a book that has very little to do with God. It's just a story of all these events that happen with Esther and Mordecai and Xerxes and all that stuff. And yet, Esther is written without God absolutely deliberately and intentionally under inspiration of God. Why? Because the whole point of that book, if you've read Esther any time recently, when you read through that book, what you find is so many astonishing coincidences keep happening, don't they? And the coincidences are so precise and so perfect that at the end of the book, although God was never stated by name, He was there all along. His providence was organizing every event that happened. Similarly, after verse 11, Jesus by name disappears. But has Jesus disappeared from Paul's life? No. The Lord in His providence is orchestrating coincidences that happen in His life to what? Get Him protected as the Lord saw fit and to fulfill His promise to Paul that He would preach the gospel in Rome. Let me again footnote. Verse 11 does not promise that we will preach the gospel in Rome. Don't misappropriate that promise. It is that Paul will not just preach in Jerusalem, but that he will survive long enough to preach the gospel also in Rome, which must have been a tremendous comfort to Paul since that was his goal even before this moment uh, occurred. So all Paul has in these coming hours of intense opposition, all Paul has to hold on to is what? A promise from Jesus. And if the promises of Jesus are good enough for Paul, I can guarantee you they're going to be good enough for you and for me. One other point on this real quick. Sinclair Ferguson has this wonderful way of speaking. He gets this really from the Garden of Eden temptation. But he said Eve and Adam too, but Eve was tempted when she started using her eyes rather than her ears. In other words, she saw the fruit was good to taste, the delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She was starting to live by what her eyes could see and not what her, her ears had heard what God had said. And so Sinclair Ferguson says, listen, we need to learn to live by our ears, not by our eyes. In other words, what's going to happen all day, every day is that our circumstances are going to tell us that God cannot be trusted that we have to take things in our own hands, that we've got to manipulate and get these things. We've got to worry, and we can't trust God, and things are not going to turn out according to His good plan. And His Word tells us something else, and we have to decide, are we going to trust our eyes or our ears? And we must live by our ears, trusting God's promises, not by what so often seems to be happening around us. Point number two, the problem. The problem. Let's look at verses 12 to 15 for the problem. It is not hard to see 
Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, let's just stop for a second. Pretend you don't know the next verses. That's all you know. Is what Paul, if Paul could see what's happening, is what Paul sees contradicting what he just heard from Jesus? Jesus said, you're going to, be, you're going to live to preach in Rome. And what, what, if Paul could see what all is happening, what would his eyes see? His eyes would see, no, you're not, right? His eyes would see 40 men, 40 men have just sworn that they're not going to eat or drink. Now, listen, if you're going to make this terrible oath, and I don't recommend this oath, don't include the drinking part. I mean, that just makes it all the worse. Now they've got, what, a few days before they got to kill Paul, they're just going to be, they're going to be in some trouble. But these guys said, we're not going to eat, we're not even going to touch drink of any kind. They made an oath. In fact, they're actually, the, the, one of the verses actually says that they, in the original language, they anathematized themselves with an anathema, which means they put a curse on themselves if they do, if they do not obey what they had promised. These guys are going to be not just hungry and thirsty pretty soon, they're also going to be under their own self-made curse. So I don't know how, not a good, not a good idea to follow them in their, in their pathway here. But right now, circumstances are in tension with what Jesus promised to Paul. And this is a serious threat to Paul's life. You get what's going to happen, right? Paul's in the Antonia Fortress. I've shown you pictures. It's on the uh, north uh, western side of the Temple Mount. They're going to take him not that far out of there, down to where the Sanhedrin met. There's debate about where exactly that was, but it's nearby. At, on the way, 40-plus men are going to start this riot. They're going to come out of the shadows, and they are going to rush past the Roman soldiers. They're willing to even die, perhaps, in the process, grab hold of Paul, put him to death, and perhaps be killed themselves by Rome. That's how devoted they are to killing Paul while he's being brought to the Sanhedrin. So that's the problem. Now let's look. Oh, let me pause there and make a quick application. Again, Christians should not be surprised by trials, adversity, and opposition. We should not be surprised. What did Peter say? Don't think it strange when you are tried by a fiery trial, as though something strange or odd were happening to you. This is the Lord's work in our life for our good, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. So, number three, the protection, the protection that Paul receives. And we'll spend a good bit of time on these verses. There are three ways that the Lord goes about protecting Paul, and the first one is Paul's nephew. Now, you may scratch your head and say, Paul had a nephew. We've never heard anything about Paul's family. We've never heard a detail about Paul's mom and dad. We don't know. We, didn't, we had no idea he had a sibling until this sudden verse just shows up. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the son of Paul's sister was, was nearby. Like, wait, what? I mean, immediately, every question you can imagine springs into your mind. We want to know more about Paul's background. And forgive me for speculating, but a lot of people speculate here. Why were they living in Jerusalem? They're from Tarsus up north. Why is his sister there and her son and her, no, doubt, no doubt her husband? Why are they in Jerusalem? I mean, this is all speculative. It's possible that they're following a similar route that Paul himself had been on, living in Jerusalem as a child, being trained by the great Gamaliel. Perhaps someone in the family is also being trained in the rabbinic-type school at the time, becoming a good Pharisee, as Paul's family were. We don't know. Was the nephew a believer? We don't know. Was Paul's sister a believer? Maybe, maybe not. We, we don't know. We, we have very little information. But here's what we do know. Just like Esther, 
a coincidence, an astonishing coincidence, is about to happen. Paul's nephew is going to overhear the plot against Paul. What, what are the chances of that happening? Not very good, okay? If you're, if, you're, if you're staking your life on that accidentally happening, it's not likely. But God is clearly in the background, in the shadows, orchestrating this for Paul's safety. So let me pause just for a moment and read you from the Heidelberg Catechism. I know Papa Fred loves this part of the Heidelberg Catechism. On the providence of God, two questions and two answers from centuries ago. And I think that they've got verses to back up each phrase, really, in, this, in these two answers. But listen to this beautiful, almost poetic uh, description of what God's providence really is or means. Number one, what do you mean by the providence of God? Listen to this beautiful biblical answer. This is the providence of God. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herb and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, and all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Now, imagine what life would be like if I could believe just 10% of what that just said. That everything's coming to me, not from fate, an impersonal force that doesn't actually exist, not by chance, just happenstance where you don't know. As famous atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, he says in that book, he says, listen, in this world, we live in a world of blind chance and luck. Some people are going to get hurt. Some people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason nor any justice in it. He says, we have a world at bottom that shows that there is no good, no evil, no purpose, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's the atheist perspective from perhaps the most famous atheist alive. This says, no, no, no. It's not blind chance. It's not someone getting hurt and someone getting lucky. It's not that there's no justice or no good or no evil. How could you even say that? No. Everything that comes into my life, listen, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, everything that comes into your life, whether it is painful or pleasant, whether it is fruitful years or lean years, whether it is sickness or health, whatever it is that comes into your life is not coming from fate or some impersonal force or chance. It is coming to you from the hand of a father who loves you enough to give his son for you. The character of this God, even in the painful moments, listen, we, we don't fully understand all the reasons God has for why we sometimes suffer as we do or the trials that we go through, but here's what we know. There is an empty cross and an empty tomb that proves what? God genuinely loves and cares for His own, and He has a purpose for our good and His glory in the happiest and most difficult days of our lives because God is a God of providence and a God we can trust. Here's the second question. What advantage is it to us? What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by His providence does still uphold all things? What advantage is it to us? Answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move." Listen, 
I know the doctrine of God's sovereignty creates philosophical issues, problems, questions. I, I understand that. And I, I'm sympathetic to those discussions. There's a time and a place for that. But for a second, let me set those discussions aside. Let's just look at the, the blunt reality. God is absolutely sovereign and in control over every molecule in the universe. Spurgeon says, I believe that there is not a single bit of water that dashes up against the side of a boat whose very course through the air is not controlled by our heavenly Father. I don't think that R.C. Sproul said there's not a maverick molecule in the universe run amok outside of God's sovereignty that could ruin all of God's plans. God is completely in control. And you say, okay, that creates a lot of questions, but here's what it does. It assures you that a God who's in control and is your Father, think about the power of those two realities. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing escapes his notice. God absolutely is, is behind the steering wheel of reality. And nothing gets out of his control at the same time. This is a God who loves you beyond anything you can possibly imagine. And he demonstrated that because he gave his son for you. Listen, he could have given you money and riches and all the things of this world. Those would have been nothing compared to what he did give you. And as, as Jerry again quoted... He who did not spare his own son. I mean, of all the things God's not going to give you, his son is the last thing he's just going to give up. So he could give you your own universe before he could give you his son. I mean, it's easy to do that. But to give up his son, to not spare his son one stroke of that whip, to not spare his son the nails, to not spare his son that your sin would be laid on his head, that the crown of thorns would be placed on his bleeding scalp, to not spare him one moment of agony and grief. This is the clear evidence that God loves his people beyond you can, anything you can possibly imagine. If God gave you Jesus, he will with him graciously give you all that you need. And some of what we need is fiery trials to test us and to mature our faith, to create endurance and patience and hope and maturity and completion in Christ. God loves us enough to put us through sometimes sorrow. And he's not against us in those moments. He is for us more than we know. You know, it, it's like Sometimes when you're having to give your child medicine, it can be an unpleasant experience for the child. If you have to give your child a shot at the doctor, whatever it may be, the child looks at you like, do you not care at all about me? And we're saying, you don't understand. I hate this more than you do, the fact that this causes you pain. But we love you and we have a purpose in this. And you may not understand why you need this, but I'm telling you, this is for your good and we love you and we're, we're doing this. And, and, and God has a loving purpose behind all that he brings into our life, and we must remember that. And here, it's a pleasant circumstance for Paul. His nephew finds out about the plot. Look with me here at verse 16. Now we're going to move into God's providential protection. Point number three, the protection of Paul. Verse 16. Now, as the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. Yes, he does. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, indicating this is a young boy, right? He took him by the hand, comforting him, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council, that's the Sanhedrin, tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for your consent, 
So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him to tell no one that, that you have informed me of these things. So in God's providence, he protects Paul, number one, with the nephew, number two, through the Roman tribune. Claudius Lysias. He uses a pagan Roman tribune to protect Paul. Does God have servants everywhere in this sense? I mean, Claudius Lysias doesn't know he's serving the purposes of God's providence, just like Nebuchadnezzar didn't know he was serving God's purposes uh, in God's providence, but God was using him in this moment, even though he was unaware. And look what Claudius Lysias does, verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, how many? 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Okay, I'm not a great mathematician, but I think I can handle it. 470 soldiers, okay? That is an astonishing number of soldiers to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, 9 p.m., also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor, and he wrote a letter to this effect, and he wrote this letter to Claudius. Now, excuse me, to Felix. Now, this is first-class treatment from the providence of God. Now, listen, it does not always go this way in our lives, okay? But there are times when the Lord just in His lavish grace provides abundant mercies that we just could not fathom. Suddenly, the Roman army, this is the third part of God's providence, the Roman army, 470 soldiers are being used to protect Paul the apostle, to get him out of Jerusalem about 65 miles northwest to Caesarea through a town called Antipatris so that Paul can be preserved. And guess what? Now he's 65 miles closer to Rome, and it's going to take a while before he gets there, but eventually he will get all the way to the Rome through God's providential guidance, and many more trials will come before Paul even gets there. But you see God's incredible mercy in this point. Now, let me just make a little note here. If you're reading this and you go, 470 seems a little bit much. Why in the world? I mean, that's actually a big chunk of the total Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at the time. I mean, it's a chunk. And so, why in the world? Listen, Claudius Lysias has had to rescue Paul how many times from mob violence? One, two, three, right? In the temple, then after he gave his speech, then in the Sanhedrin where they tried to tear him apart. He's not taking any chances on the fourth time, okay? Claudius Lysias has almost lost Paul three times. He's like, okay, this time, you know, his real, he doesn't really care that much about Paul, really. He cares about his one job, which is to keep the Roman peace, right? That's his job. If a riot breaks out, if there's mob violence, it's his neck that's on the line. He is taking no chances now. The guy's caused three other riots. I'm not letting the riot happen this time. We're putting 470 soldiers around Paul. We're going to march him out in the middle of the night starting at 9 p.m. so no one even maybe sees this happening before it's too late, and we're going to have some very hungry and thirsty 40 guys left in Jerusalem going, where's, where's Paul? I'm really hungry right now. Can we, what are we going to, I'm very thirsty. What do I do? So they get out of there, and by the time they realize Paul's gone. He's been taken far away, and they have no chance of getting to him. So, the Lord can use anybody, anything around you. It doesn't have to be a believer. It doesn't even have to be a person. It could be an inanimate object. It could be anything around you. Circumstantially, the Lord is sovereign over it all, and He works it for the good of His people. But lest you leave today thinking, and I don't think you are thinking this, but just from reading this story, you could get the false impression that um, it's only the pleasant circumstances. Now, I know we've addressed that, but I want to spend another moment thinking through this. Look with me here at verse 31, and this is point number four, the pruning. I'm going to spend a few moments on this point, the pruning. Look at verse 31. So, the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, 
And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go uh, on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, I'm going to turn to a couple of texts here. Turn with me to the right, excuse me, to the left, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Now, you say, where am I getting the word pruning from in my passage? Well, I will admit I'm cheating here a little bit. I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the story to get this word. Is Paul, if you were around Paul, do you think he was a pretty driven individual? you think he was a man on a mission when you're around this guy? Uh, I think Paul was highly motivated and ready to, to get going, not, not a lazy man. Now, in the providence of God, has he just been mercifully rescued from death? Yes, that's a pleasant providence. But now he's about to undergo a painful pruning providence, I think, for Paul, because Paul is now going to be incapacitated. He's going to be locked up in a prison cell in Caesarea, not for a week until his trial is, it happens. He's going to be locked up there for two years until the governor dies and a new governor comes in. Then he'll be released. Then he's going to go on a multi-month journey where he will almost die again across the Mediterranean Sea, uh, many, many hundreds of miles till he finally, after the winter, gets to Rome. He gets bit by a snake in the process and shipwrecked, if you remember that. Wonderful. Then he gets to Rome, and when he gets to Rome, he doesn't see Caesar right away. Luke ends the book of Acts by saying two whole years went by, and he's under house arrest. And there he is for two more years. So we're talking about four and a half years. Paul is chained to a Roman soldier. This is the guy who wants to go win the world for Christ. He can't wait to get to Spain on the western side of the Roman Empire. And what does God do? In God's mysterious providence, he puts Paul in chains for four and a half years. Do you think the Lord was doing some pruning in the life and the character of Paul when Paul wants to get out and go and Paul's chained to a Roman officer? I have no doubt that in God's providence, there was a disciplinary pruning process that went on in Paul's character. And we see the fruit of that in Philippians 1. But let's look at John 15. I love these opening verses. Jesus says the night before his crucifixion in the upper room, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, let's, let's jump back here for a moment. I want to look at verses 1 and 2 again. Let's zoom in on 1 and 2. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes 
that it may bear more fruit. This is talking about the Father's loving and at times painful discipline in our life to make us more like Christ. And I want to read an extended quote here from a book by Sinclair Ferguson. It's on the uh, upper room. It's called Lessons from the Upper Room, The Heart of the Savior. It's a great little book on John 13 to 17. Just follow along as I read an extended portion here about the Lord's pruning. I think as Paul was locked in chains, he would have experienced some of this, and perhaps we in our, in our difficulties will experience this as well. And this was a comfort to me personally uh, as well recently. So l- l- listen to these words. If we knew nothing about horticulture or gardening, the sight of someone cutting pieces off vines or bushes would seem like mindless destruction. But it is necessary for healthy growth to produce a stronger plant and better fruit. When we are pruned, we ask questions. Why is God doing this? Does He not care about me? Our natural response to pruning is to say, please stop. Don't you see this is hurting me? But here Jesus helps us. True uh, understand, excuse me, true, understanding that the Father is a pruning knife using vine dresser does not relieve the pain and solve every detail of life's mysteries. Our minds are far too finite to understand fully what the infinite Lord of all is doing. But if we grasp Jesus' teaching about our union with Him, right, the vine and the, and the, and the branches are un- unified together, we will realize that what to our eyes seems hurtful and even wasteful, is essential for our spiritual development and usefulness. Have you seen that to be true in your life? This is how God nurtures in us the fruit of the Spirit. By cutting away what hinders our growth, He makes us more like Christ and more useful in His service. And this is my favorite part. This was a lesson that Amy Carmichael had, lear- had to learn for herself and often taught others. A missionary in India for more than half a century, she saw and personally experienced much surf- suffering. But reflecting on this passage, this text, she, Amy Carmichael, wrote these wise words, and this is from her, what prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, a vine dresser, there is not a random stroke in it at all, nothing cut away, which it would not have been a loss to keep and gain to lose. And she prayed, Lord, good Lord. Rid me of every diverting thing. And then Sinclair closes with this thought. When the vine dresser, the father, uses his pruning knife, the effects can be sore and his ultimate purposes hidden from us. But he never makes a mistake. Not a cut is ever wasted. Jesus could have repeated here his earlier words to Simon Peter. What I am doing to you now you do not understand, but what? Afterward, you will understand. What was true of the washing of Peter's feet is true of every cut of the divine pruning knife. Now, I could close right there. I want to do just one more thing very quickly. Turn to the right to Philippians chapter 1. As Paul was stuck in chains for four plus years, we could be very thankful for that. Why? Because if Paul had not gone through that experience, for all we know, we would not have his prison letters which include Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philemon, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus come afterwards. I'm missing one. Philippians. Philippians. That's correct. Philippians. Thank you, Jesse. Philippians is the other one. So all those, I think seven letters of Paul all come as the fruit of that time in prison. And so we can be thankful for what the Lord was doing in Paul's life. Just a quick reminder of what Paul experiences in the later time in his prison. Philippians 1, look at verse 12, Paul's perspective. After This is at the end of the four and a half years. 
Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Look at the verse, end of verse 18. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Do you see the perspective on life that Paul has? This is the work of the Father's pruning and the Spirit's work in Paul's life. This is an amazing, miraculous perspective in the midst of trials to look ahead where he could be killed by Caesar or released, and he looks and says, if he kills me, that's gain for me. I get more of Jesus. If he lets me live, great, more for you, because I can come advance your joy in the faith. It's a win-win situation, but I think the Lord is going to get me out of here and let me live. So through the Lord's pruning, we come out the other side, and we have a more clear view of reality and the gospel. I hope a stronger trust in the character and goodness of the Lord. And we can say with Paul, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I feel like I know so little of, of the reality, but I, I do know a little bit of the trials of the people in this room and some perhaps listening online. And just the little I know is a, is a burden to hear about. And I'm sure that there are far more trials and difficulties and challenges in this room than, than I'm even remotely aware of. But Lord, I thank you that I, I don't have to know you know, and your word is still true in all those circumstances. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who is in control of our lives, that you will not let us, those in Christ, shipwreck our faith, that you will hold on to us, that you will never lose a single one of your sheep, that you hold us in your hand, and that no one can snatch us out of your hand. Thank you that nothing in all creation, whether the present or the future, height nor depth nor any powers, nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that you would help us to trust your heart, your character, your true love for us demonstrated at Calvary, that we would trust that, everything to that, so that when the ups and downs of life are coming our way, sometimes so unexpectedly and suddenly, God, that we could entrust our souls to a faithful creator while we continue to do good. God, please work in us this faith. Strengthen it. If you have to prune, Lord, prune. But strengthen our faith. Strengthen our trust. As the author of Hebrews said, no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. But in the end, it yields a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.